Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Acts 17, verse 16 tells us, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we now... May we know what is this new doctrine of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, stranger things. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you're very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all, commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, I, I thank you this morning for the time slot we have, the, the, the moment we have in our lives to open up your word and for you to open up the heavens to speak straight into our lives. So we ask God, I ask Lord, Father, first and foremost, that there would be open hearts in here, that you would open eyes in here that we would be open to a new, fresh perspective and reminder of who you are, not in our imagination, but who you are in truth. That's why we're here, God. That's what we most desperately need in our lives, to know who you are. So we 
acknowledge that we don't know or we tend to assume that we know wrongly, God, all that you are. And we invite you to change what we think today. And we know this is only possible and this can be expected because of the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, do for us what Andrew can't, what we can't do for ourselves, and that is change our lives. Speak to us. This is your time, God. Get me out of the way so that you can speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start by just simply saying this, that it's, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence this morning that we are beginning our Nineology series with, as I said, theology or the doctrine of God. This doctrine, this theology of understanding who God is and what he's like is the center point for not only the rest of our studies in theology, but this is the center point for all of life, for all of life. A lot of you guys know that last week I was traveling abroad for two nights. Um, that's just a, a really stuck up way to say I went to another country, but um, got to go to Cartagena, Colombia, a beautiful place, second time going there, led a missions team down there years ago, and visited a good missionary friend of mine who was marrying a Colombian native, and just an awesome experience there. Um, it's usually in these Latin American experiences that my uh, Spanish-speaking switch just kicks on, and it's the immersion, you know, um, and for those of you who have been on a mission trip with me to Latin America, you're laughing at how ludicrous that is. Um, I do my best. I do my best. Um, the most dangerous thing about trying to speak Spanish when you don't, in, as a gringo, in a Spanish-speaking country is the second you say like two words, they assume, assume you know all the words. So this is always dangerous. Habla espanol? And you say this. You try to act all like, like all humble, right? Un poco. Right? Just, <laughs> like you even responded in Spanish, right? Oh, just un poco, right? And then it's, all, then it's like off to the races, and you just <laughs> smile, smile. Uh, hola, donde esta policia? Because I'm lost, okay? Um, so there, there's one rule of thumb that I've, uh, I've adopted whenever I travel to a, a land, a foreign land, where I am a gringo and I don't have any translators. Most of the time I had that, but there's a couple points along the trip where I was on my own. And it's to find out what is the center point, where is the center point of the city. And for Cartagena, it's the old city, a historical, a beautiful area. It looks a little bit like San Juan. Um, and it's actually called Centro. It's the center point of the city. And I knew this, that if I ever got lost, if I found myself down a Spanish dirt alley, in Colombia at the wrong time, I could always just call a taxi and hopefully he'll not kill me, but take me to the center of the city. Um, it's, it's that point of guidance whenever I would get lost. And let me say this, that our understanding of who God is in truth is the same thing. Most of our issues today don't stem from the secondary confusing things about life. I want to guarantee that if you can find the truth of who God is as the center point of your life, you'll find that everything else kind of takes care of itself. In, in, in a kind of a simplistic way, but in a deep way. A lot of us have lost our way this morning because we, like Israel, we see that in the Old Testament, we've lost sight of who God is. 
And this is a theme all throughout the Old Testament. God wanting his people to, before anything, know who he is. It's 37 times, rather, excuse me, 47 times in the Old Testament that God tells Israel that he's doing what he's doing or he's working the way he's working, listen, so that they would know that he is the Lord their God. 47 times. God says, I'm doing all this in your life. I'm accomplishing these purposes. I'm taking you through what you're going through. I'm even bringing this judgment down on your nation because you have lost sight of who I am. And the most important thing in your life is to know me. It's our theme verse, John 17, 3. This is what Jesus came to bring us. It's eternal life, not in the way that we tend to imagine it. We tend to think of eternal life as living forever. But a true fact of scripture is that every human being will go on forever. The question is, in what state and with who? You see, true eternal life, saving faith, eternity for the Christian, is not something that's going to happen one day when I die, but eternal life begins the second I come into saving faith through Jesus. The second I'm reconciled to God, because eternal life is not living forever, but it's knowing God in truth. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the gospel. The gospel is not get out of this place so that you can go to that place. It's come back to knowing the God who created you. This is what changes our lives. And this is what we tend to lose sight of, even as as followers of Jesus. Uh, Just yesterday, I I mentioned I got this suntan. And um, at least it came about the right way. It came about through me being a a modern dad trying to fix my sprinkler system uh, in my yard. And um, there was, there's not enough YouTube videos for Andrew to fix the sprinkler system. Let me just say that. Um, but my, uh, my landscaper's son, who helps him, was kind of giving me a few pointers. And one thing he pointed out as I was trying to unclog all these old sprinkler lines is that he, he perceived that it looks like the clog wasn't in, the backup wasn't in the secondary lines, but it was in the main line. From all the dirt that I got built up, it got kicked back in there, and it was, at the end of the day, it was the, the, the one area that I really needed to focus on. And so many of us, I think, w- when it comes to God, so many of us, we're, we're spending so much time, I think, on secondary things, right? Trying to change them. Trying to help them. Trying to fix this issue. And it's like we put in all this work and we're still left dry. And could it be that we're fixing the wrong line? Could it be that the, the backup is closer to the center where God is, of course. And that was God's heart for Israel. Um, let me say this, that we were created to know God in truth. We were created to walk with God, to get to know him more and more as we walked with him and knew him. It's through our sin that the Bible describes that we have become alienated from God as human beings and we have been cut off from that knowledge of God. And even our understanding, the way that scripture says it, is that our understanding has become darkened. We, we, it's not just that we don't know enough about God, it's that we can't. There's this brokenness almost in our capacity to know him because of sin, which again was what makes the gospel such good news, that God would go to such great lengths to bring us back into relationship with him. Uh, and we see this in the text that we just read, right? We, we see Paul, it's verse 16 that we read, that when Paul comes to Athens, notice the thing that burdened him the most. It says that his spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked means that he was upset. Okay? He was, he was bothered. It was this deep emotional pain. Now, let's clarify something. Though. As Paul comes to this city, notice that his burden is not that there is a widespread ignorance 
in Athens regarding the Institutes of Religion by John Calvin. How are you doing, Athenians, men of Athens? Are you Calvinists or Arminianists? No, no, no. Uh, are you continuationists or cessationists? Are the gifts of the Spirit for today or have they passed on in a, in a special time for the apostles? Are you a premillennialist or an amillennialist? Are you a pre-tribulation rapturist or a post-tribulation rapturist or a mid-tribulation rapturist? Do you let women preach in church? What's your ecclesiology? How are you governed? What's your strategy? Paul, listen, Paul didn't primarily care for any of those things. Those were saying it was about who God was. His spirit was provoked within them. He was bothered. His passion was that they would know God in truth. In truth for who he really is. Now this culture that Paul found himself in, the culture of Athens, was a culture that had a myriad, a myriad of theistic ideas. Uh, a, a just hodgepodge conglomerate of concepts about who God is. Let's go through a couple of them and, and I'll point out a few more. Uh, the different theistic beliefs, some, some up here we see actually in Athens. Uh, first was the, the first one that Paul noticed there in verse 16, that they were given over to idols. Um, so they kind of would worship anything that could take their worship. This is called polytheism. This is the theistic belief that there are multiple gods. Multiple gods, okay? Uh, but in addition to that, notice the people that were there. Uh, the Epicurean philosophers in Athens were the ones that confronted Paul along with the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans were deists. So they believed that maybe there's a god, but if there is, he's completely disconnected from this earth and life, as Al Pacino calls him. He's the absentee landlord. He sort of got things going, set the rig up, but he's disappeared. A lot of us maybe struggle in our own experience with our, our earthly fathers in, in understanding God, unfortunately, in this way. We, we just imagine him as someone who saved us and then has kind of moved on. This is called deism. There's some secondary doctrines that can subtly become deism when you make it all about man and what man does. But that, that was the Epicurean idea. They were deists. God is disconnected from life. And then you had the Stoics. Uh, Stoic, it, it means, uh, literally comes from the Greek word that means porch. They were the porch people. They sat on the porch to talk about ideas about God. And they were historically pantheists. Uh, pantheism is this idea that God is all and all is God. A lot of people get pantheism confused with what's called panentheism. Pan, you got to add an E in there and just make it complicated. Thanks, Greek philosophers. But panentheism, as if they created the English language, that's wrong. But anyway, panentheism is the idea that there is a God, but he's sort of as a universal soul inhabits all things. Now, pantheism is different. Pantheism just believes that everything is God. Not one being inhabiting all things, but uh, essentially that God is all things. He's this table, he's the tree, he's, he's you, he's me, he's Netflix, he's Beyonce. He's everyone, okay, and everywhere. Write that down. God is Beyonce, pan and pantheism, okay? Don't write that down. Okay. That, that's what we saw there in their culture. And we also saw, um, or rather, let's, let's move now to our culture. I think when you look at this culture in Athens, Paul affirms that for the most part, it's a religious culture. So no shortage of theistic ideas about God. They, they were religious. Now, 
a tough challenge Paul had, right, going into a culture with such a variety of views about God. There's multiple gods, there is a God, he's disconnected, or pantheism, he's everything. And Paul comes in to proclaim the one true God. Now that's hard, but Paul hasn't been to Boca Raton, Florida, I'm just going to say. He hasn't been to the American Western context. It's interesting. I think the day that we live in is um, that kind of culture. There's still religious uh, uh, ideas about God, but we also have the addition of secularism. So we live in a religious, sort of fading religious, but still religious in its roots. So you still have some fruits there, but a rapidly increasing secular culture. And with that, in our culture, you kind of have this bridge, I think, between religious history and with modern secular culture. And the bridge is this word syncretism. Syncretism is like, I'll call it this, it's like backdoor polytheism. Front door polytheism is, oh, there's a bunch of gods. But syncretism sort of in a sneaky way says, God is a little bit of everything. So I'll take this from the Muslim God, this from the Christian God, this from the Mormon God, the New Age God, the Beyonce God. I'll take them all, okay? Syncretism, sort of syncing everything together. And as C.S. Lewis said, that if there is no concrete, yet, concrete reality, C.S. Lewis said that if I can see through everything, he said, then eventually I won't be able to see anything. If I can see through everything, if there's no concrete truth or substance, then I will eventually see through everything. I won't be able to see anything. Does, does that make sense? It's kind of the modern idea today. There is no absolute truths, which is a very absolute statement, isn't it? It's absolutely true that there are no absolute truths, and the origami structure falls down, okay? Like, no, that doesn't work. But the blend there of syncretism, starting to start to see through anything, everything, has led to our day-to-day, -day, our secular age, which is filled with agnosticism first. This is, I would say this is the more uh, respectful out of the theistic ideas. Um, I don't want to say I prefer one over the other. But there's a humility to agnosticism that says, listen, I'm not going to say that there's not a God, but I'm just going to say I don't know. I don't know. And that's a great place to start as long as you are open to God making himself known, Right? So agnosticism is God cannot be known. Uh, and then you have atheism, which is just simply God does not exist. It's the faith that there is no God. Okay? The belief, the, the confidence, uh, which is rooted in faith, that there is no God. And I added a, another one down there, anti-theism, uh, the idea that God is bad for the world, which uh, is, by the way, a major shift that we've seen happen in our culture, specifically in the last decade. So it's hard enough when there are people who firmly believe that there is no God, but I want us to understand that we live in a culture that largely has passed through the Christian faith and the gospel, has moved to agnosticism, from that has moved to I don't believe in God, to now, the, I'm not sure if you know this, listen to songs, watch the news, watch movies, just keep your eye open to this and see how the enemy is sowing into our nation's heart this idea that God is wrong. This God who is good and perfect and loving and made us all for such a great purpose and is nothing but always good. He's bad for the world. So uh, do you guys know this difference there? There's atheism, but then there's this anti-theism. It's kind of a weird atheism. It's like you evangelize people into the belief of nothing. Right? It's like, let me preach my anti-gospel to you. It's, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic. The, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. How foolish it is to take a greater degree of offense against God. Now, I want to remind you, this Thursday night, Mike is going to take some time to cover this. 
why this idea doesn't hold up scientifically, historically, morally, logically. All right, but generally, here we have sort of, again, this hodgepodge idea. Now, regardless of our differences between our context, our thinking about God, and Athens, the one thing that Boca Raton, Florida, and Athens have in common is the same thing that Paul zeroes in on, and it's this, that they do not know who God is in truth. Your neighbors, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, the thing that should grieve us the most is regardless of what they think about God, the question is, do they know him in truth? Do they know him in truth? And so that's what we see Paul begin to preach. And I love this about Paul. I love that Paul doesn't wait for some golden opportunity to show up at his door like a UPS package from Amazon Prime. I love that he just steps into every opportunity he could get to proclaim who God is. It's beautiful. So, so it says that he goes in the synagogues and he starts just reasoning. doesn't start preaching at them, but just starts talking with them. Hey, what do you think about God? Why have you come to those conclusions? How do you know that that's true? Have you considered the God of Scripture? He just starts reasoning with them. I, I love it in verse, what is it? Verse 17, it says that Paul, he ended up in the marketplace daily. I love this, with those who had happened to be there. Right, we're always waiting for those divine appointments. Just show up at Town Center Mall. And whoever happens to be there, you just start loving on them, you make a conversation, and what just so happens to happen is actually God's divine appointment. Rather, you know, we wait for God's divine appointments. I think God wants us to pursue his divine appointments, right? And so here's, Paul, and here's what's amazing. As he's faithful in the secret areas, look at what God does. Look what God does with a little faithfulness. Now God gives him a big platform. The person you were talking to, those are the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. They came along, and I love this. They, they hear Paul preaching about this one true God, and they say, what does this babbler have to say? And other people said, he's preaching. This is some good foreign stuff. This is an imported theology, okay? It's coming to our land. And, and, and I just love this. So they go, let's bring him to the Areopagus. This was a, a larger platform, Mars Hill, where he was able to preach almost on an open-air platform. And uh, what's amazing about this is, I love what it says there in verse 21 that uh, these Athenians, the reason why they were so excited to have Paul speak is that they, they spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing, okay? Before Netflix, right? Before Instagram. You know, back then, all people did was go to open public forums and argue about new concepts, Facebook, okay? Um, some new thing. That's us today with our smartphones. It's social media, pre-social media. And here's Paul with this larger platform. And notice the, this is so cool, notice the bridge that Paul builds to proclaim God. Notice that he doesn't go, hey guys, welcome. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17? We're going to read a story about me. All right. Um, he, he, he finds common ground. He contextualizes the gospel. He contextualizes the reality of God to, listen, the cry of their heart. I want to tell us that, I want to say this, that so much of evangelism these days is answering questions that no one's asking. And they're, listen, they're answers to questions that they need to ask, but there's questions before that question that need to be answered first. See, sometimes evangelism is, we like to be microwave about it, like put it in, push, okay. Did you say the prayer? You didn't? Okay, goodbye. I'll go to the next city. Dust it off, right? But, much of evangelism, much of sharing God is relationship, walking with someone, letting them ask the hard questions. What if, oh, you've gone to church. Oh, you've been burned by the church. Oh, how has that affected your view of God? You see, it's finding that middle ground. And the middle ground for Paul in this society in Athens, did we see that? 
in verse 23, he notices that these, this religious culture, I love this, they wanted to have all their bases covered. So as polytheists, they're pantheists, they're deists, they're all a hodgepodge of theistic ideas, but just to make sure they weren't leaving out any god, they had an altar to the unknown god. When I was in Columbia, they were telling me there's a guy that, that uh, goes to a church down there, my friend was telling me, and he goes, he rotates every Sunday going to a different church, Catholic, Mormon, which I wouldn't call that a church, but I would call it a cult, but then he would go to Jehovah's Witness Fellowship, he would go to uh, a Calvary Chapel, and he would just make sure, you know, I mean, at least, at least I tried, right? So when I get to heaven, God can say, are you a Catholic? Yep, yep, see my attendance, you know, so that's kind of what he was doing, and I sort of see that a little bit with with this, this guy, it's kind of salvation through us getting, us getting it right, which is not the gospel. Salvation is Jesus gets it right, and we receive him. But here was this idea of the unknown God. So Paul goes, okay, the unknown God. That's a perfect on-ramp for me to proclaim to you who this unknown God is. Do we see it there? In verse 23, he says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found this altar to the unknown God. Notice this. Therefore, I want you to see this. The one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Him I proclaim to you. Some key words there. The one. I love it in my Bible. It's capitalized. The one. Him. He. He's personal. Him I proclaim to you. He says in verse 24, God God, who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Listen, Paul proclaims not a God who is one of many, but he proclaims a God who is one and only. I proclaim to you the one. This is called monotheism monotheism. This is uh, ground zero for a proper theology of who God is. We would understand this, that there is only one true and living God, Paul teaches us, who is the exclusive creator of all things. And this is, by the way, this is a bigger deal than you think it is. Uh, This was so central to the nation of Israel that God would repeat this in almost every single book of the Old Testament Bible. Uh, you have Deuteronomy 4.35 says, The Lord God, the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. Deuteronomy 32.39, God says, There is no God beside me. Psalm 86.10, You alone are God. Isaiah 43.10, God says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me, there is no God. And even in the New Testament, listen to 1 Timothy 1.17. It says that God is the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God. In 1 Timothy 2.5, couldn't it be more clear? In case you're just unsure by now, if there's one God in the Bible, it says this, there is one God. There is one God. Do you know this? That there is only one true and living God. One God who created you. One God who loves you. One God who knows you. One God who died for you. There's one God. There's one true and living God. That's why Jesus says this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God. And this one, Paul says, him I proclaim to you. He he is not one of many. He is one and only. He is exclusive in his existence as the creator of all things. He made you. He he made everything you can imagine. Now this is a, a, a direct 
response to polytheism, but it's also, it's also a loud voice against atheism. There is way too much beauty in this messed up world for this to be an accident. There is way too much complexity in this messed up world for this to be an accident. Mike Russ is going to get into this on Thursday. The cosmological argument for God. The teleological argument for God. Yeah, life hurts. But there's just way too much beauty for this to accidentally stumble upon itself. There's way too much intelligence around us. And just like any other piece of intelligent artwork would point to an intelligent creator, Romans 1 says creation does the same thing. It does the same thing, right? Like it would be ludicrous for someone to assume that, you know, uh, a Benjamin Moore exploded and out came the Mona Lisa. And, and we're just talking about... Um, Artwork that man has made, what about the creation creating man himself whose brain is the most complex organism in the universe, in the known universe? Your mind. Intelligent design can only reflect intelligent designer. He made the world. He made it all. He created everything made for him, made by him, made through him. Everything from birds to the, the trees and the bees and all that stuff it all the joys and the pleasures of life i love genesis one one of my favorite aspects of god's creation genesis one talks about it is that god even made seeds according to their kind like god from eternity past in his omniscience designed the coconut he said i shall make coconut coconut genius it, it just washes up on the beach it has enough water in it that it makes a coconut tree more coconuts Love coconuts. All right. All right, so, so whatever it is, have you seen uh, BBC's Planet Earth? They have God to thank is the idea, okay? They have God to thank. Uh, he, he made the world. So this is against that idea of atheism. Also deism too. It, notice he, he's personal. He's knowable. Uh, we know the scripture ascribes male pronouns to God. God does not have a gender as we do in biological, anatomical fashion, but scripture reveals God through the person of Jesus as a he. He is our father in heaven. It's anthropomorphic human language to help us understand something beyond our understanding. He, God, the idea is that he has personality. He's not just energy. God is energy. God is this, God is that, God is, is, how's your energy? How's your chi? Your chi all right? No. Get chi out of here, okay? All right? All right? He, personal, knowable, an intelligent being and creator. And I love this too. Notice what he says as he's proclaiming this one true God. Notice what he says. He is Lord of heaven and earth. This is huge. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Now this speaks to God's independence and self-existence, we'll talk about that in a second, but this also speaks to God's transcendence. And this is a voice in the face of, let me throw it up again, in the face of pantheism, that God is all and all is God. God is so much greater than that. He, he's outside of what he's created. He's not bound by what he's created. He's the creator, his transcendence. That goes in the face of pantheism. But notice also that he is also eminent. He's also present. 
Uh, it goes on to say that he gives life and breath to all things. Uh, later on in, in the, the sermon that Paul is preaching, where is it there? It's verse, it's verse 28. It says that it's in him that we live and move and have our being. So here's a God who's transcendent, distant, far above all that he's created, yet he's not on vacation. He's present, he's eminence, which goes in the face of deism. So you see this monotheistic vision and picture that Paul is painting for those who are listening to him. And what's amazing about it is I want you to notice this about this God, and this is why this God stands alone apart from every other God. Notice this. After proclaiming this God, Paul says this. He says in verse 26 that he is made from one blood, look at verse 26, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God not only knows you, he knows where you are right now. You're not there on accident is what this is saying. God hasn't lost control of his creation. He hasn't lost sight of his, of his creation. And he's appointed every person's bound. He knows where you are. He knows where you're at. Verse 27, why am I where I am right now in life? Maybe you're asking that. Maybe you haven't had a relationship with God with years in years. And you found yourself in this place of nowhere. Like, where am I? You are where you are, verse 27, so that you should seek the Lord. And listen, this is the thing here. Ready? In hope that you might grope or reach for him and find him. Notice this, because he's not far from you. Wow. The idea that I'm where I am because God wants to be found by me and all I have to do is reach for him because he has brought himself near to me. This is the one true God. And the reason why Paul is able to say this, I want to say this. The reason why Paul says that you can reach for him and find him, listen, is not because you're smart enough, not because you figured him out, but it's rooted in the fact that he has made himself known. It's what's called his revelation, okay? Um, some have said that this is for us as people, fallen and sinful, depart, uh, cut off from the knowledge of God. Some have said that this is the most important for us doctrine in scripture, that God has revealed himself. He didn't have to, but he has. Um, and what's interesting about this this is obviously compared to agnosticism that says God can't be known. Scripture says that God has made himself known and can be known. Okay? He can be known. Um, and and C.S. Lewis takes this a little deeper uh, to the point and kind of puts a little more weight underneath it. And he, he explains it this way, that really at the end of the day, we're at, we're at the mercy of God doing this. Like to know God is to be at the mercy of his own willingness to disclose himself. Does that make sense? So the, back in C.S. Lewis's day, there was this Russian, give me an example, there was this Russian cosmonaut not an astronaut, cosmonaut in the cosmos. He goes up to the cosmos, and he was an atheist, this Russian atheist cosmonaut. Sounds like a cartoon character, but he was, he was real. And he went up to the cosmos, and he returned to Earth, and he said, well, I went to the heavens, and God wasn't there. He wasn't there. And C.S. Lewis responds to this beautifully, and he says, you know, it's a dangerous assumption to think that if there was a God, that he could be discovered within our own realm. Or like, like an island in the Pacific Ocean. Like, I, hey, I found, I reach him, I found God. Now, usually what that creates is prideful people. Humble people are those that God has found, amen? Those who are lost and have been found. Prideful people say, oh, I found God. Look at my idea. That's why as Christians, we don't go around as those that are, are prideful about what we know about God. We say, yeah, I know God. Isn't it amazing that he let me know him? It's at his mercy. 
So C.S. Lewis said, that's a dangerous assumption. You know, he says, the way we relate to God, okay, if there was a God, let's just assume, that the way we would relate to him is not the way that someone in the first story of an apartment relates to someone in the second story, right? Like, I heard his footsteps, and I went upstairs and knocked on his door, and I found God, right? He said, rather, we would relate to God the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Or Harry Potter relates to J.K. Rowling, or whatever her name is, you millennials, okay? But, you see, Hamlet is a character in Shakespeare's story. Hamlet is never going to stumble across Shakespeare by looking at the top of the set. Where is he? Shakespeare. It's Hamlet. Your creation. Listen to this. This is beautiful. C.S. Lewis says, the only way for Hamlet to ever know anything, the character, to know, ever know anything about Shakespeare, the author, is if Shakespeare chose to write something about himself into the story. Can I give us a reason to be happy this morning? God has written much about himself into our story. Have you seen him? Let's give him a praise. Let's thank him for doing that. He's done this. He's written about himself into our story. Um, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because it would have been enough for God to just tell us a little bit about him. But, but because this God, we're going to study more about God in part two next week, theology part two. But because this God is such a God of grace, we're going to study these characteristics and love. When he looked into our story, he saw how lost we were. He saw how broken we were. He saw how cut off we were. He saw how stuck we were in the dark. So he did more than write something about himself. Know, know what he did? He wrote himself as an actual character in the story. I'm going to come in the form of a bond. I'm going to come in the form of man. And I'm going to... I'm going to write myself, this is a sad story. Apart from Jesus, how many of us know this story ends pretty sad? It's a tragedy. But because God is a God of love, he doesn't want your story to end in a tragedy. And the way that he fixed that is he sent a hero into your story. He's better than Captain America, Iron Man, Groot, I am who all they are. I don't care who they are. They're great. Good movies. Nothing compares to the miraculous rescue of Jesus who said, I'm going to come into this mess. I'm going to walk alongside of this mess. I'm going to take within my own flesh, upon my own self, the weight of this mess so that these who are messy can become clean, forgiven, loved, so that they could, listen, not only know about this God, but through Jesus who paves the way for us, we can have a relationship with God. We can know him. You know what the Bible says about this? The Bible says this. It says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen? Amen? I said, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the gospel. Not just that we would know about God, but we would know God in truth for who he is revealed in his son, Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 
For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.